Book Six, Part Three of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, translated by Brooks Moore. Book Six, Part Three. The lords of many cities that were near now met together and implored their kings to mourn with Pelops those unhappy deeds, the lords of Argos, Sparta, and Mycenae, and Caledon, before it had incurred the hatred of Diana, goddess of the chase, fertile Orchomenus and Corinth, great in wealth of brass, Patre and fierce Messina, Cleone, small, and Pylus and Troezen, not ruled by Pythias then, and also all the other cities which are shut off by the isthmus there dividing by its two seas, and all the cities which are seen from there. What seemed most wonderful, of all those towns Athens alone was wanting, for a war had gathered from the distant seas, a host of savage warriors had alarmed her walls, and hindered her from mourning for the dead. Now Tereus, then the mighty king of Thrace, came to the aid of Athens as defence from that fierce horde and there by his great deeds achieved a glorious fame. Since his descent was boasted from the mighty Gradivus, and he was gifted with enormous wealth, Pandion, king of Athens, gave to him in sacred wedlock his dear daughter, Procne. But Juno, guardian of the sacred rites, attended not, nor Hymenaeus, nor the Graces. But the Furies snatched up brands from burning funeral pyres, and brandished them as torches. They prepared the nuptial couch, a boding owl flew over the bride's room, and then sat silently upon the roof. With such bad omens Tereus married her, sad Procne, and those omens cast a gloom on all the household till the fateful birth of their firstborn. All Thrace went wild with joy, and even they, rejoicing, blessed the gods, when he, the little Itis, saw the light. And they ordained each year their wedding-day, and every year the birthday of their child, should be observed with festival and song. So the sad veil of fate conceals from us our future woes. Now Titan had drawn forth the changing seasons through five autumns, when in gentle accents Procne spoke these words, My dearest husband, if you love me, let me visit my dear sister, or consent that she may come to us, and promise her that she may soon return if you will but permit me to enjoy her company, my heart will bless you as I bless the gods." At once the monarch ordered his long ships to launch upon the sea, and driven by sail and hastened by the swiftly sweeping oars, they entered the deep port of Athens, where he made fair landing on the fortified Piraeus. There, when time was opportune to greet his father-in-law and shake his hand, they both exchanged their wishes for good health, and Tereus told the reason why he came. He was relating all his wife's desire, promising Philomela's safe return from a brief visit, when Philomela appeared rich in her costly raiment, yet more rich in charm and beauty, just as if a fair dryad or naiad should be so attired, appearing radiant from dark solitudes. As if some one should kindle whitening corn or the dry leaves, or hay piled in a stack. So Tereus, when he saw the beautiful and blushing virgin, was consumed with love. Her modest beauty was a worthy cause of worthy love, 
But by his heritage, derived from a debasing clime, his love was base, and fires unholy burned within from his own lawless nature, just as fierce as are the habits of his evil race. In a wild frenzy of his wicked heart, he thought he would corrupt her trusted maid, her tried attendants, and corrupt even her virtue with large presents. He would waste his kingdom in the effort. He prepared to seize her at the risk of cruel war, and he would do or dare all things to feed his raging fire. He could not brook delay. With most impassioned words he begged for her, pretending he gave voice to Procne's hopes. His own desire made him wax eloquent, as often as his words exceeded bounds, he pleaded he was uttering Procne's words. His hypocritic eyes were filled with tears, as though they represented her desire. And, O oh, you gods above, what devious ways are harboured in the hearts of mortals! Through his villainous desire he gathered praise, and many lauded him for the great love he bore his wife. And even Philomela desires her own undoing, and with fond embraces nestles to her father, while she pleads for his consent, that she may go to visit her dear sister. Tereus viewed her pretty pleading, and in his hot heart imagined he was then embracing her, and as he saw her kiss her father's lips, her arms around his neck, it seemed that each caress was his, and so his fire increased. He even wished he were her father though, if it were so, his passion would no less be impious. Overcome at last by these entreaties, her kind father gave consent. Greatly she joyed and thanked him for her own misfortune. She imagined a success, instead of all the sorrow that would come. The day declining, little of his toil remained for Phoebus. Now his flaming steeds were beating with their hoofs the downward slope of high Olympus, and the regal feast was set before the guests, and flashing wine was poured in golden vessels, and the feast went merrily, until the satisfied assembly sought in gentle sleep their rest. Not so the love-hot Tereus, king of Thrace, who sleepless, imagined in his doting mind the form of Philomela, recalled the shape of her fair hands, and in his memory reviewed her movements and his flaming heart pictured her beauties yet unseen. He fed his frenzy on itself, and could not sleep. Fair broke the day, and now the ancient king, Pandion, took his son-in-law's right hand to bid farewell, and as he wept commended his dear daughter, Philomela, unto his guarding care. And in your care, my son-in-law, I trust my daughter's health. Good reason, grounded on my love, compels my sad approval. You have begged for her, and both my daughters have persuaded me. Wherefore I do entreat you and implore your honour, as I call upon the gods, that you will ever shield her with the love of a kind father, and return her safe as soon as may be, my last comfort given to bless my doting age. And all delay will agitate and vex my failing heart. And, oh, my dearest daughter Philomela, if you have any love for me, return without too long delay and comfort me, lest I may grieve for it is quite enough that I should suffer while your sister stays away." The old king made them promise, and he kissed his daughter while he wept. Then did he join their hands in pledge of their fidelity, and as he gave his blessing, cautioned them to kiss his absent daughter and her son for his dear sake. Then as he spoke a last farewell, his trembling voice was filled with sobs, and he could hardly speak for a great fear from some vague intuition of his mind surged over him, and he was left forlorn. So soon as Philomela was safe aboard the painted ship, and as the sailors urged the swiftly gliding keel across the deep and dim land fast faded from their view, 
Then Tereus, in exultant humour, thought, Now all is well, the object of my love sails with me while the sailors ply the oars. He scarcely could control his barbarous desire, with difficulty stayed his lust, he followed all her actions with hot eyes. So, when the ravenous bird of Jupiter has caught with crooked talons the poor hare, and dropped it, ruthless in his lofty nest, where there is no escape, his cruel eyes gloat on the victim he anticipates. And now, as Tereus reached his journey's end, they landed from the travel-wearied ship safe on the shores of his own kingdom. Then he hastened with the frightened Philomela into most wild and silent solitudes of an old forest where, concealing among deep thickets a forbidding old house stood, there he immured the pale and trembling maid, who vainly in her fright began to call upon her absent sister, and her tears implored his pity. His obdurate mind could not be softened by such piteous cries, but even while her agonizing screams implored her sister's and her father's aid, and while she vainly called upon the gods, he overmastered her with brutal force. The poor child trembled as a frightened lamb, which, just delivered from the frothing jaws of a gaunt wolf, dreads every moving twig. She trembled as a timid injured dove, her feathers dripping with her own life-blood, that dreads the ravening talons of a hawk from which some fortune has delivered her. But presently, as consciousness returned, she tore her streaming hair and beat her arms, and stretching forth her hands in frenzied grief, cried out, O oh, barbarous and brutal wretch! Unnatural monster of abhorrent deeds! Could not my anxious father's parting words, nor his foreboding tears, restrain your lust? Have you no slight regard for your chaste wife, my dearest sister? And are you without all honour so to spoil virginity, now making me invade my sister's claim? You have befouled the sacred fount of life. You are a lawless bond of double sin. Oh, this dark punishment was not my due! Come! Finish with my murder your black deed, so nothing wicked may remain undone. But, oh, if you had only slaughtered me before your criminal embrace befouled my purity, I should have had a shade entirely pure and free from any stain. Oh, if there is a majesty in heaven, and if my ruin has not wrecked the world, then you shall suffer for this grievous wrong, and time shall hasten to avenge my wreck. I shall declare your sin before the world, and publish my own shame to punish you. And if I am prisoned in the solitudes, my voice will wake the echoes in the wood, and move the conscious rocks. Hear me, O heaven, and let my imprecations rouse the gods. Ah, oh, if there can be a god in heaven!" Her cries roused the dastard tyrant's wrath, and frightened him, lest ever his foul deed might shock his kingdom. And roused at once by rage and guilty fear, he seized her hair, forced her weak arms against her back, and bound them fast with brazen chains then drew his sword. When she first saw his sword above her head, flashing and sharp, she wished only for death, and offered her bare throat. But while she screamed and struggling called upon her father's name, he caught her tongue with pincers, pitiless, and cut it with his sword. The mangled root still quivered, but the bleeding tongue itself fell murmuring on the blood-stained floor. As the tail of a slain snake still writhes upon the ground, so did the throbbing tongue and while it died, move up to her, as if to seek her feet. And it is said that after this foul crime, the monster violated her again. And after these vile deeds, that wicked king returned to Procne, who, when she first met her brutal husband, anxiously inquired for tidings of her sister. 
but with sighs and tears, he told a false tale of her death, and with such woe that all believed it true. Then Procne, full of lamentation, took her royal robe bordered with purest gold, and putting it away, assumed instead garments of sable mourning. And she built a noble sepulchre, and offered there her pious gifts to an imagined shade, lamenting the sad death of her who lived. A year had passed by since that awful date. The sun had coursed the zodiac's twelve signs. But what could Philomela hope or do? For like a jail the strong walls of the house were built of massive stone, and guards around prevented flight, and mutilated she could not communicate with any one to tell her injuries and tragic woe. But even in despair and utmost grief there is an ingenuity which gives inventive genius to protect from harm. And now the grief-distracted Philomela wove in a warp with purple marks and white a story of the crime and when twas done she gave it to her one attendant there, and begged her by appropriate signs to take it secretly to Procne. She took the web, and she carried it to Procne, with no thoughts of words or messages by art conveyed. The wife of that inhuman tyrant took the cloth, and after she unwrapped it saw and understood the mournful record sent. She pondered it in silence, and her tongue could find no words to utter her despair. Her grief and frenzy were too great for tears. In a mad rage her rapid mind confounded the right and wrong, intent upon revenge. Since it was now the time of festival, when all the Thracian matrons celebrated the rites of Bacchus, every third year thus, night then was in their secret, and at night the slopes of Rhodope resounded loud with clashing of shrill cymbals. So at night the frantic queen of Tereus left her home, and clothed according to the well-known rites of Bacchus, hurried to the wilderness. Her head was covered with the green vine-leaves, and from her left side native deerskin hung, and on her shoulder rested a light spear. So fashioned, the revengeful Procne rushed through the dark woods, attended by a host of screaming followers, and wild with rage pretended it was Bacchus urged her forth. At last she reached the lonely building, where her sister, Philomela, was immured. And as she howled and shouted, "'Ee, woe, ee!' She forced the massive doors, and having seized her sister, instantly concealed her face in ivy-leaves, arrayed her in the trappings of Bacchanalian rites. When this was done, they rushed from there, demented, to the house where, as the queen of Tereus, Procne dwelt. When Philomela knew she had arrived at that accursed house, her countenance, though pale with grief, took on a ghastlier hue, and, wretched in her misery and fright, she shuddered in convulsions. Procne took the symbols, Bacchanalian, from her then, and as she held her in a strict embrace, unveiled her downcast head. But she refused to lift her eyes, and fixing her sad gaze on vacant space, she raised her hand instead. As if in oath she called upon the gods to witness truly she had done no wrong, but suffered a disgrace of violence. Lo! Procne, wild with a consuming rage, cut short her sister's terror in these words. This is no time for weeping! Awful deeds demand a great revenge. Take up the sword, and any weapon fiercer than its edge. My breast is hardened to the worst of crime. Make haste with me. Together let us put this palace to the torch. Come, let us maim the beastly Tereus with revenging iron, cut out his tongue, and quench his cruel eyes, and hurl and burn him writhing in the flames. Or shall we pierce him with a grisly blade, and let his black soul issue from deep wounds a thousand? Slaughter him with every death imagined in the misery of hate. While Procne still was raving out such words, Itis, her son, was hastening to his mother, and when she saw him, 
her revengeful eyes conceiving a dark punishment, she says, Aha! Here comes the image of his father! She gave no other warning, but prepared to execute a horrible revenge. But when the tender child came up to her, and called her mother, put his little arms around her neck, and when he smiled and kissed her often, gracious in his cunning ways, again the instinct of true motherhood pulsed in her veins, and moved to pity, she began to weep in spite of her resolve. Feeling the tender impulse of her love unnerving her, she turned her eyes from him and looked upon her sister, and from her glanced at her darling boy again. And so, while she was looking at them both by turns, she said, Why does the little one prevail with pretty words, while Philomela stands in silence always with her tongue torn out? She cannot call her sister, whom he calls his mother. Oh, you daughter of Pandion, consider what a wretch your husband is! The wife of such a monster must be flint! Compassion in her heart is but a crime." No more she hesitated, but as swift as the fierce tigress of the Ganges leaps, seizes the suckling offspring of the hind, and drags it through the forest to its lair, so Procne seized and dragged the frightened boy to a most lonely section of the house, and there she put him to the cruel sword, while he, aware of his sad fate, stretched forth his little hands, and cried, "'Ah, oh, mother! Ah!' Oh! and clung to her clung to her while she struck, her fixed eyes, maddened, glaring horribly, struck wildly, lopping off his tender limbs. But Philomela cut through his tender throat. Then they together mangled his remains, still quivering with the remnant of his life, and boiled a part of him in steaming pots, that bubbled over with the dead child's blood, and roasted other parts on hissing spits. And after all was ready, Procne bade her husband Tereus to the loathsome feast, and with a false pretense of sacred rites according to the custom of her land, by which but one man may partake of it, she sent the servants from the banquet-hall. Tereus, majestic on his ancient throne, high in imagined state, devoured his son, and gorged himself with flesh of his own flesh, and in his rage of gluttony called out for Itis to attend and share the feast. Cursed with a joy she could conceal no more, and eager to gloat over his distress, Procne cried out, "'Inside yourself you have the thing that you are asking for!' Amazed, he looked around and called his son again. That instant Philomela sprang forth, her hair disordered, and all stained with blood of murder. Unable then to speak, she hurled the head of Itis in his father's fear-struck face, and more than ever longed for fitting words. The Thracian Tereus overturned the table, and howling, called up from the Stygian pit the viperous sisters. Tearing at his breast, in miserable efforts to disgorge the half-digested gobbets of his son, he called himself his own child's sepulchre, and wept the hot tears of a frenzied man. Then with his sword he rushed at the two sisters. Fleeing from him, they seemed to rise on wings, and it was true, for they had changed to birds. Then Philomela, flitting to the woods, found refuge in the leaves, but Procne flew straight to the sheltering gables of a roof, and always, if you look, you can observe the brand of murder on the swallow's breast, red feathers from that day. And Tereus, swift in his great agitation, and his will to wreck a fierce revenge, himself is turned into a crested bird. His long, sharp beak is given him instead of a long sword. And so, because his beak is long and sharp, he rightly bears the name of Hoopo. Before the number of his years was told, Pandion, with the shades of Tartarus, because of this, has wandered in sad dooms. 
Erechtheus, next in line with mighty sway and justice, ruled all Athens on the throne left vacant by the good Pandion's death. Four daughters and four sons were granted him, and of his daughters two were beautiful, and one of these was wed to Cephalus, grandson of Aeolus. But mighty Boreas desired the hand of Erythia, fair and lovable. King Tereus and the Thracians were then such obstacles to Boreas, the god was long kept from his dear beloved. Although the great king, who compels the cold north wind, had sought with prayers to win her hand, and urged his love in gentleness, not force. When quite aware his wishes were disdained, he roughly said with customary rage and violence, "'Away with sentimental talk! My prayers and kind intentions are despised, but I should blame nobody but myself. Then why should I, despising my great strength, debase myself to weakness and soft prayers? Mine is my right, and violence my strength.' By force I drive the force of gloomy clouds. Tremendous actions are the wine of life. Monarch of violence, rolling on clouds, I toss wide waters, and I fell huge trees, knotted old oaks, and whirled upon ice-wings I scatter the light snow, and pelt the earth with sleet and hail. I rush through boundless voids. My thunders rumble in the hollow clouds, and crash upon my brothers, fire to fire. Possessed of demon rage, I penetrate, sheer to the utmost caverns of old earth, and straining up from those unfathomed deeps, scatter the terror-stricken shades of hell, and hurl death-dealing earthquakes through the world. Such are the fateful powers I should use, and never trust entreaties to prevail or win my bride. Force is the law of life." And now impetuous Boreas, having howled resounding words, unrolled his rustling wings, that fanned the earth and ruffled the wide sea, and swiftly wrapping untrod mountain peaks in whirling mantles of far-woven dust, thence downward hovered to the darkened world, and canopied in artificial night of swarthy overshadowing wings, caught up the trembling Arithia to his breast. Nor did he hesitate in airy course until his huge wings fanned the chilling winds around Siconian walls. There she was pledged the wife of that cold northern king of storms, and unto him she gave those hero twins, endowed with wings of their immortal sire, and graceful in their mother's form and face. Their bird-like wings were not fledged at their birth, and those twin boys, Zetes and Calais, at first were void of feathers and soft down. But when their golden hair and beards were grown, wings like an eagle's came and feather down grew golden on their cheeks, and when from youth they entered manhood, quick they were to join the Argonauts, who, for the golden fleece, sought in that first ship, ventured on the sea. End of Book Six, Part Three